Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. I don't know how many people remember the set list at all. What they remember apparently about Pink Floyd at Iverwind Stadium in 1975 was absolute devastation. It can be the voice of the guy who does those monster truck commercials. Sunday, devastation, Iverwind. That's, that's the story, it seems. All these years later, 48 years later, people seem to just remember that that, Iver, that uh, Pink Floyd concert at Iverwind Stadium was a bit of a disaster. But I don't know that it was a disaster for those who were inside the stadium. There's a new video. And again, I said a few minutes ago, it's not really a new video. It's an old movie that's been uploaded now newly onto YouTube showing a whole bunch of that concert. And boy, is it ever spawning reactions. John Wells is a feature writer at the Hamilton Spectator. You've seen his work. You all know John Wells' works. Great writer. Uh, he is actually working on a piece on this. Joins me now. John, how are you today? I'm good, Scott. How are you doing? I'm excellent. Look, uh, you and I, neither one of us were there that day. Neither one of us were probably old enough. Or, well, I mean, unless our parents had sent us off as as, as young. Hey, you're in grade two. Go watch Pink Floyd. Um, but you and, and we're both not Hamiltonians by birth. We've both arrived here. But is there a story that is more a part of the legend and the fabric of Hamilton than the Pink Floyd concert? I, I think you'd be hard pressed to find one, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm finding more of that the more I, I, I research uh, research the piece and look back at old spectator clippings from from '75. That there, there's a lot of lore um, associated with it, and uh, you know the, the spec put out a call uh, on the website for for people to offer memories of um, of the concert, I'm, and I'm getting I'm getting quite a few emails from. <laughs> From folks and talking about different memories, and and as you, as you suggested, there are there are, are extremes on this from those who think it was the greatest thing of all time to those who consider it a, uh, a a catastrophe of sorts. And and it seems as though the divide, and maybe I'm being too simplistic with this, but it seems as though the divide between those two extremes is if you were inside the stadium or outside the stadium, because those people who are inside. See, I mean, I, I was reading some stuff online today, people saying this was the greatest concert I ever saw. And yet those people who live in the neighborhood or on city council or whatever else are saying this was the worst thing that ever hit Hamilton in the history of this city. That, that's right. And yeah, there was one headline I've, I've got on my computer right now from one of the clips back at the time, a story written by, uh, in part by, by Doug Foley, a, a former spectator writer. And the headline says, fans heaven, neighbors hell. Ah. Uh, and that... <laughs> So that that kind of captures it, I guess. Uh, and and uh, you know, I've, I've heard from one a woman that I'm, I'm going to interview her uh, more at length, but she 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 wrote in quite detail about you know the uh, the litter on their lawn and um, teenagers and what were called hippies back in the day, at least uh, doing all all, all all sorts of uh, unspeakable things in the neighborhood. But then those inside, um, yeah, that it was just it was a, it was a formative moment for for many people. Although when you look at the video, I'm struck by how. It maybe it's the nature of the music and what was being consumed, and it's, it's a real <laughs> laid back, to say the least. Yeah, among the crowd, right? Yeah, I watched I, I watched the video that was posted, and, and people can if you go to the spec dot com and click on the the link. There's a story there asking for people's memories. There is a link to the video, or you can just look it up on YouTube if you want to try and find it. Um, but you're right. So people are like just sitting there. Enjoying the music. I mean, as you say, I, I think probably there was about four tons of pot that had been smoked by that point. They were probably pretty mellow, but it was like, it's amazing when you see that 
and then you hear the story of the chaos, then it doesn't look like it's the same thing. No, 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 that's right. And, uh, I mean, uh, you know, uh, Graham uh, Rockingham, the, the Specs uh, entertainment writer, referred to Pink Floyd as a, a space rock uh, band, which I hadn't heard that term before. Maybe I'm not up in the terms. But, uh, you know, uh, Pink Floyd was, was touring uh, Dark Side of the Moon primarily back then. And uh, I guess, you know, I, I, I know the, the hits from that album, but I guess, you know, the, the music itself lent itself to, I guess, introspection and, and kind of, uh, going off into the uh, the ether with, uh, with with your emotions or something, but and you, as, as you point out, yeah, the plot and other other things. You know, I was struck by you know in terms of you know the crowd that looked quite mellow. Uh, the, the spec had stories back in the time about how Hamlin's police uh, went to Cleveland to see a Rolling Stones concert to get a, a handle on how to deal with with huge crowds at outdoor venues. I mean, the, the build up to this was really quite something, and the, and, and the fear that it was going to get it was going to get nuts. Yeah, it, it's kind of, I mean, it, it's similar in some way. More recently, uh, people may remember this, the Grateful Dead came to Hamilton probably phew, 25 or 30 years ago, right near the end of their time. And, yeah. you know, it, it, again, like lots of expectation of, oh, this is going to be, and it was, you know, it wasn't. Uh, even the description, John, of everything that happened with the neighbors and the yards and everything, all I could think of when I read that again, because I've heard this story so many times, is it really kind of just sounds like homecoming week at McMaster now in Westdale. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just, just, just more of it, I guess. But yeah, no, very, very, very similar, you know. And, uh, you know, but that's, and, you know, the nature of having Ivor Wynn there, as, as Tim Hornsfield is now, but, but an even bigger stadium right in the middle of the neighborhood. And, uh, you know, people would say when they're coming to Hamilton, who, who I've talked to people who came to Hamilton and were quite amazed that, oh, here's this stadium, and, it, and it's right in the neighborhood. I mean, which it, it was the charm of the place, of course, but I guess if you lived there, and you had the spillover effect from uh, afterwards. I, I think in part, some of the, you know, I mean, what do I know? I didn't live there, but, uh, you know, the hippies might have gotten a bit of a bad rap. I mean, I, I have no doubt the Ticat games back then, uh, you know, the after, the after um, overflow fans uh, outside the stadium and fights and litter. And so I'm sure it got, you know, a little, a little uh, out of hand then yeah, too. But I would, I would think, us, you know? John, I would think the two differences, and you're not wrong. I mean, look, I've seen brawls outside Tim Hortons Field and Iverwind Stadium after Ticats game, especially on Labor Day. I think the two differences are, one, uh, when I look at the photos of the Pink Floyd concert, the thing that amazes me is basically it looks like if you could afford a ticket, we would sell you a ticket. There were so many people in that place. It was unbelievable how many people they crammed in there. And the second thing was, you know, having a little fight or whatever outside the stadium is one thing, but, you know, dropping trow and pooping on someone's lawn is something else entirely <laughs> different. Neighbors tend to get a little cranky about that stuff. Yeah, that's true. I, I, I did see the word defecate in some of the coverage. <laughs> uh, and that, uh, yeah, that does seem to, you know, in terms of numbers, you know, I was struck, I, I've written pieces about about uh, you know the Arkells uh, over the years and so on, and and people talk about the rally, you know the two huge rally concerts at Tim Hortons Field and how many people, and and those were impressive. But I, just checking the numbers, that you know the, those those Arkell shows were were sold out in Tim Hortons, but it, it was less than half the people. Yeah, and at Ivor Wynn, I mean the sheer volume when you see the pictures, it's really it's unbelievable. I mean Tim Hortons Field looks huge, and the crowds there look big when you. But it's nothing compared to what that was. It was, I mean, again, if people want to look it up online, they can find pictures of it. it you, and tell me I'm lying here, you could not see any space on the field, on the stands, anywhere. It was it was just people crammed in everywhere. Well, that's, that's right. And, you know, and Pink Floyd, I mean, uh, 
this was a mega group. I mean, in yeah. 1975, at their peak, post Dark Side of the Moon, some some argue it was maybe one of the, you know, the greatest rock albums of all time. It played. Everyone had that album in their in their houses, or everyone's older brother, in my case, had that album. And uh, so, Pink Floyd was huge. Well, we got to. Uh, so, if if people, let me just read one email. By the way, that John got. John sent me a couple of these emails. I was at that Floyd concert in Hamilton in 1975. I was with my older brothers and friends. I was 17. I saw a beautiful blonde girl take off all her clothes and try to get on stage, but she was pushed off by a roadie and fell into the crowd. That caused fighting. There were a lot of fights. <laughs> that's, <laughs> yeah. that's, a, that's a great email. I hope you're going to talk to that person. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. Where, so if somebody, part of part of this is you're going to be writing something about this, where, where it's, uh, where can people be in touch or if they have stuff or if they were there, or whatever, like who are you looking to talk to? Yeah, but yeah, but people who, uh, and I'm hearing from them already. You know, people who attended the show, or, or even, or, or people who lived in the neighborhood at the time and recall something of um, what, what their parents are going through, or perhaps they themselves were parents back then who who uh, who, who lived near the stadium, uh, or anyone who had any sort of connection to the show at all. Really, if, if they want to send me an email at uh, jwells at thespec.com. And um, you know you can write up a memory that, that perhaps I'll quote from the email, or I may I may call you. Know, I'm hearing from more people than I need, frankly, at this point. But uh, <laughs> happy to hear from more. Uh, more is always better than less. As, as I try to sort of kind of write an oral history of the whole event in terms of the buildup and the uh, and the fallout. Tickets, by the way, eight dollars and fifty cents for that concert today. They would be five hundred dollars in all likelihood for something like that. Uh, John, really appreciate you doing this. Thanks for taking some time. Thanks a lot, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. There aren't too many things that you are going to do if you want to get feedback and debate and, well, I I won't use the word rage, but maybe. If you want to get people engaged and discussing their passionate views on something, Try getting involved in a debate about changing minor hockey. My next guest knows all about this. Uh, He is the past chair and now acting chair again of Hamilton Minor Hockey Council, which is trying to change minor hockey, recreational minor hockey in this city a little bit in order to try and stem the bleeding of losing players and finding ways to keep people in the game. Some people think this is a brilliant idea that will do just that. Others, very loudly, very much in opposition to this. Uh, Peter Martin joins me now. Peter, how are you? I'm fine. Thank you very much for uh, allowing me to be with you. Well, you know, it's always amazing to me that um, the the one thing we could talk about... uh, killing baby dogs or anything else. There's all kinds of things that are horrible things. You mentioned changing minor hockey, and boy, everybody has an opinion and a strong one. Well, it's a Canadian sport. That's how passionate everybody is, that's for sure. So the idea here, and I'm going to make it very, very simple just so we can get to the part of the conversation. There there has been a severe decline in the number of kids who are registered to play minor hockey, youth recreational hockey, and we're talking about not in the suburbs, in the old city, downtown, and up on the Central Mountain. And so you want to change the way House League is done so that there is a select program and a House League program. The two don't interrupt or don't interact, interact with each other. And there will be a citywide league so you don't just play in your own arenas. 
why would this, why do you believe that this would help to do the things you want it to do? Well, again, as you mentioned, the challenge is the declining registration. And, you know, it's been happening now for over 10 years. So So it's not just COVID? No, not at all. It, you know, the decline started in 11 to 15 and then really began to tumble. You know, everyone's looking at the COVID pandemic, but uh, the trends have been there. And it's traditional for older cities where the central core of the city uh, recreation can decline because families move to the suburbs, right? Toronto experienced pretty, pretty well the same thing. So the question is, how do you get in front of the curve? Uh, the Hockey Council was created to create uh, community-based programs so children could live in their neighborhood and play in their neighborhood. Um, and at that time, you know, our associations would probably have six teams a division, um, which is the preferred number, um, and that the players have variety of, of games and choices when they play different teams. Um, you know, we've declined to a point where our associations now can maybe only build one, two, or three teams in a division. Uh, we have some with four, but we only have one of our six associations that actually has six teams in a division, which is a the preferred program. So what do these other teams do right now? All they're doing is, is interlocking and playing an exhibition series with, you know, they don't record wins and losses. They, um, you know, there's no challenge at the end of the season. And I don't really think the amount of time I spent with our players that that's what they want, you know, um, having a team and not having it in, a preferred league is like playing a game without keeping score. Mm. I think they deserve better than that. The two, and now, okay, so that's the idea behind it, that let's try and make this more interesting. Let's try and add more teams so you get different views. There, there are, and as I say, I've, I've had response which has said this is something that is a good idea. The flip side is, and you've acknowledged that there has been pushback on this, the two issues that seem to be the biggest ones that I've heard on this, first one is the idea, you mentioned community, that if you were to do a citywide league, you do not have community associations anymore. Those days when you would go to your local rink and everything was in your local rink and you played kids from your neighborhood, that would be gone. Would that be gone? Well, in, in, in a limited way, um, you know, we would have enough teams that you would have an east-west, two, two divisions. You'd have east-west. Um, and how far is Shadok from Mountain or Shadok from Coronation? Not very far, right? Um, so it, it all comes down to whether or not, as a greater community, we're willing to help um, those within our community who can't really foster the preferred program. And that's the crossroads we are. Mm. And if the founding fathers of the Hockey Council did determine that two levels of recreational hockey were preferred so that players could play at just a higher level without uh, the commitment of travel and cost that our rep teams incur. And it was tremendously successful um, in the first half 15 years it was tremendously successful 
And again, you know, declining registration impacted that and the growth of select teams took their place and really has got us back to square one where we have uh, six individual associations that are struggling to find uh, a common interest or uh, a way forward for recreational hockey as a whole. We accomplished it back in 1988. It was painful, and we're attempting to do it now. But certainly uh, we need more uh, conversations on it. We need more dialogue on it. There's so much misinformation um, there in the community that we have to get somehow get back on the same page and determine how we move forward. Peter, we only have a few seconds, and I, I, this needs more time than I can give you, unfortunately. But the, the number one thing that seems, though, to be the problem that I've heard anyway, and you may hear something different, but so many people saying, look, it's not about where you play or whatever. It's hockey has become just too darn expensive and people can't afford it, which is the problem in the inner city and some other places in town. Is there any solution to that or is that just the reality? Again, I think that if we, we build the teams in their community and enter them into a common league, the cost should go down because, you know, together we can do many things, uh, buy equipment together, uniforms together, um, limited travel for the parents. Um, you know, our select teams are, are playing over 53 games a season uh, for a recreational hockey player. Uh, I mean, the cost alone for the parent there is excessive. If we take those players on tier two and build teams and allow them to play just in the city itself, the cost is probably half of what they're experiencing now. And that, that should attract uh, more interest and hopefully more registrations, you know, not only from uh, the core of the city, but possibly the surrounding centers as well. Mm. It's a very complicated issue, but boy, lots and lots and lots of passion on this one. Uh, Peter Martin, head of the net, currently the head of the Hamilton Minor Hockey Council. He's been there for a long, you've done this for a long, long time, but uh, maybe maybe there's an out for, for you at some point and you can retire at some point, but uh, <laughs> really appreciate you taking some time, well, Peter. Thanks for doing this. It, it's a matter of everybody coming together with a common purpose. That's that's the best result we could have. Thanks, Peter. Appreciate you doing this. Thanks for the time. Bye now. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We're going to do something this hour that we don't always do. Although, you know, we, we often hear people say in polite society, you should never talk about politics or religion. Well, we talk about politics all the time on the station, myself and Rick and Bill and Scott and whomever else. We don't do a whole lot of talk about religion, but we are going to today because tomorrow is Good Friday, Sunday is Easter Sunday. Seems like an appropriate time to talk a little bit about that. You know, we talk about Easter with a lot of other things, but we sometimes dance around why we have Easter in the first place. But we're going to talk about that and some of the 
difficult questions, challenging questions, questions that people have, issues that people have, perhaps. I want to bring in Jamie Strickland, who is a pastor at West Highland Church up on the mountain, and Gord Heath, who is a professor at McMaster Divinity College. Thanks for doing this, guys. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. Really appreciate it. You know, I when I told a couple of people that we were going to be talking about this today, which um, somehow n- never really gets talked about, I don't think, uh, I actually had a few people say, are you going to actually talk about what Easter is? And I said, we don't need, I mean, that doesn't need to be explained, does it? But then I get the idea that we have reached a point perhaps where we are post-Christian enough as a culture that some people don't know. I mean, am I right or am I wrong? Well, that's 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 pretty uh, perceptive because I think increasingly the assumptions that we used to have about what people knew about Christianity, Christian holidays, Christian holy days, Christian saints, all that kind of thing. I think those assumptions we need to uh, to rethink because increasingly, well, you've probably read the recent census, increasingly fewer and fewer people identify as Christian in our country. And so I think those who are Christians, those who are church leaders, um, can't assume that the people, even in their pews, even know much about mm-hmm. their own tradition, let alone people who who perhaps even check off on a census that they're Christian, but don't really attend church. So, But, I mean, Jamie, in, in at one time, even if you didn't believe, you probably, as a matter of course, went to church on a Good Friday or Easter Sunday. You probably went to Sunday school at some point if you had grown up in Canada. That was our overwhelming numbers. N- not now. Right, right. Yeah, no, that's right. I Like, for a while, before I became a pastor, I worked on university campuses and would speak with students about this all the time. And I just found that year after year, as time went on, less and less knew some of the most, what I assumed were basic stories of the of the Christian faith, whether it was things like David and Goliath or or the Easter story of, of uh, you know, Good Friday, Jesus dying on the cross and, and uh, rising from the dead on uh, Easter morning. But people just weren't familiar with that as much. And what's amazing to me, though, is that we still use in our vernacular people will will say the good samaritan you know i'm, I'm going to be a good samaritan today or we'll talk about uh, you know a david and goliath story i don't know that they necessarily i mean the words are still in our language we still use them i don't know if we know as well what they actually mean well yeah there are scholars of shakespeare literature and and in that literature they say you can't even begin to understand some of the idioms and some of the language of shakespeare without understanding christianity and and even some of the popular terms we use today like well you're the sports guy it's a david and goliath sports battle right and and so but who could tell you where is that in the bible and who's david and who's goliath what sides are they on and so and yeah, it's probably times not just, changing and and you mentioned shakespeare it's probably not just stories of Christian holidays or even religious of any other religious holidays. It's anything older seems to be sort of put aside a little bit. I mean, Shakespeare, we probably know, I I read something the other day that now, I don't know that anyone else would know this. I said, it was pointed out that Shakespeare coined the word vomit. Hmm. Who knew that? But you know what? It's, but we all use it. We (laughs) all, you know, but who would have known that's where it came from? Just a, a total aside, but nonetheless, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Th- there seems to be a lot of things that have been traditions that a, lot, a few past generations would have known, obviously, that right. we don't. Right. right. Yeah, I just think there's a lot that uh, our culture is, is founded on, that, uh, but we don't know where, where it's come from. And, uh, but yeah, so it's interesting to talk about it. Okay, so if that's the case, and if, and we're going to get to it, there's a poll out that we're going to talk about a little bit over the course of the hour that uh, a Leger poll that came out yesterday about religious beliefs and followings in this country. 
And, and one of the things that it clearly gets to, and again, we'll talk about it more in depth in a second, is we are a post-religious society in a lot of ways. If we are no longer a people that are as concerned about religion or Christianity, is there still relevance to Easter and the Easter weekend beyond Easter bunnies and chocolates? Yeah. I don't think, I would disagree. I wouldn't think we are. I don't think we are a post-religious society. Uh, there are many devout Christians, devout Muslims, devout Buddhists, devout people of all religions who take their faith quite seriously. And so, so to say we're post-religious, I think goes too far. I think you have a significant body of nuns, not N-U-N-S, but yeah. N-O-N-E-S, those who identify with no religion. And Glad so you clarified yeah, that one. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. The nuns are growing. So, but the nuns in terms of people who identify with no religion. And so, yes, in that sense, there, there are significant shifts in how people identify. In this case, those nuns mainly came from, from identifying as Christians. And so there are significant changes that way. But I think, um, I, I would think it's more accurate to say we're post-Christendom. Uh, we're not post-Christian even because majority-wise, we still identify at least on a census as Christian. But we're post-Christendom. Christendom meaning that marriage between part, that marriage between church and state, where church and state worked closely together to create some kind of Christian civilization, where the laws were Christian, the state identified, self-identified as Christian, the culture identified as Christian, and the church had power. It was at the center of cultural power and held political power even. That's Christendom in a nutshell. And we're past that. Like, the church doesn't have that kind of power. And so I think it's fair to say we're post-Christendom. I don't think we're post-Christian. I don't think we're post-religious. But, Jamie, we even had a story today from Quebec talking about um, that the Quebec government has now banned prayer rooms in schools. This was something they were, I think it was a nod to the Muslim community, but they've now said, no, you can pray quietly in school, but you can't have a special room. You can't have something organized. It does seem as though... There are a lot of people, it's not even maybe post-religious, uh, but there is, there are clearly, we know this, a lot of people who say, I don't want any kind of religion intersecting with public life at all. And if we're going to have an Easter weekend, why are we still calling it Easter? Why, why, ha why are we not calling it something else? Why is it even still on the books? Right, right. Yeah, well, I think we, we're living in an interesting time where we are shifting in many ways more than uh, perhaps in previous generations saw these shifts. And so, um, yeah, I would ag agree with what, uh, what Gord is saying in that um, I don't think we're, we're necessarily less religious. We're maybe less organized religious <laughs> than we used to be. We hear so that a people lot. Are, people are less um, going to an organized religious service, but people are still searching for deeper meaning in things. They might not be looking for it in the same places that they used to look for, but I think people are still have these deeper questions that they're still looking for and, uh, and trying to find a place to find that. But are they looking for it in any kind of religion or even spirituality? And again, well, a lot of things I'm saying we're going to get to, we will, but this Leger poll came out yesterday or today. Uh, among other things, one of the things it says only half of Canadians now, according to this poll, even believe in God which now 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40, 50 years ago, that number would have been, you know, I may not have gone to church, but I believe in God. N the fact that half of Canadians aren't even there now, Gord, is oh, a massive change. Those I haven't seen that one, that, that, but I've read a number of books and articles, and there's, there's a cottage industry of books trying to analyze what's taking place in Western society in terms of religion, in terms of church. How can churches respond to the, the dramatic changes that are taking place? Um, 
but it's uh, we don't know where it's going. That's that's like we're at a very unique period in Western civilization for over a thousand years. Western civilization, meaning most of Europe, North America, South America, we're, we're pretty much Christian civilizations. Maybe they didn't do everything. You're turning the other cheek kind of Christian, but in terms of cultural values, norms, laws, worldview, um, self-identifying as Christian, um, but to so rapidly, I mean, we're talking post-1960s. In the 1950s, the churches were building new churches. It was booming. It was the 60s and 70s where the bottom fell out of church attendance. And so, so churches, some denominations are still reeling from what's taken place in the last generation. And they're trying to figure out is this temporary? Is this permanent? Where where is this going? What if if this is not the answer? Well, then what is the answer for people? No religion, different religion, um, a new version of Christianity. But clearly, that's yeah. based on this. Clearly, yeah. that is where a lot of people are saying that that mm -hmm. we've done the religion thing. Mm -hmm. I don't want to do the religion thing anymore. And Jamie, how does I mean churches are facing this all the time as far as having fewer people in the pews? Is there is this something that is turn or turn aroundable? It's not really a word, but I mean, is this this has to be something that pastors and people in the religious world talk about all the time? What do we do here? What do you do? Right, right, yeah, and I think it's it's worth noting as well, though, that we're, we are talking about a Canadian kind of Western phenomenon. We are also living in a time where worldwide the church is growing faster than it ever has in all of human history, right? If we're talking about uh, South America, Africa, Asia, the church is, is very much growing. And uh, I think as more and more immigration sets into Canada, we are seeing more and more people that are coming that are religious, whether they're Christian or Muslim or, or other religions. But so it, but it, def it definitely is something uh, that, w that we talk about. And uh, I think what, what I'm noticing is that perhaps the amount of devout followers of Christ or devout followers of other religions, those numbers I don't think are really changing. I think what's changing is those that were Christian because it was cultural to be Christian in the past. And so, like you said, maybe 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, you felt more left out if you weren't part of a some sort of religious congregation. Now there's not that same kind of pressure or like it's just not part of our culture as much to be a part of a, a church group. And so we're losing some of those people that came out just for, you know, social or, you know, cultural purposes. But I still do think um, the amount of devout followers of religion are, are probably not decreasing. And Gord, Jamie just brings up something very insightful because the poll points right at this as well. I mean, directly at it, that in their poll of who is religious or who is a Christian, the softest group is those that was born in Canada, second or third generation Canadians. The newcomers, much, much, much higher numbers as, as saying they are very devoted to whatever it is that is their religion. Why is that? Why do you think that people who have been here for a few years have fallen away or those who are new here are bringing those beliefs? Well, no, it's a great question. The, the reasons for the drop-off of North American Christians have been, you know, lots of different explanations, influence of the Enlightenment, influence of the two world wars on Western civilization, the, the response of, or the lack of response of the church to injustice, or the scandals of the church, or, or all kinds of, you know, the impact of Western modern civilization on, on the importance of religion in one's life. And so, you know, they've looked at that and said, well, those things have really contributed to 
perhaps the waning of North American Christians and their the spiritual vitality. Jamie's alluded to or mentioned the, the, the ph phenomenal growth of the church in, let's say, sub-Saharan Africa. A hundred years ago, 10 million Christians in Africa. Today, roughly 700 million. So it's like it's in another generation, perhaps close to a billion. And when so why those, does it resonate there as well, opposed to here? Well, partly because they haven't gone through the same kind of cultural experiences we've gone. They haven't gone through in many cases, in some cases, yes. Um, but their culture resonates with a, with a worldview of miracles. Uh, their culture resonates with, with certain um, cultural mores and values and perspectives. Their worldview reflects the worldview of the Bible more than the Western sort of secular approach to, to the universe being very mechanical, no God intervening, where in their world, God does intervene and God, and they read the New Testament, they realize, hey, it's the same world. And so there's a resonance with Christianity among uh, sub-Saharan Africans uh, because uh, it, 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 what they read in the Bible is their culture. And in the church in the West, much has been written on this, the church in the West is, is, is benefiting from mass immigration from sub-Saharan Africa because they, and, and South Korea and other parts of the world, China, Hong Kong, they bring this vibrant, um, spirit-filled, Christianity that is helping the Western churches, you know, kind of like reinforcement, so to speak, that they're, that they're, there's a sense, actually some people calling it reverse mission, that, you know, 100, 200 years ago, missionaries from the West went to Africa, and now there's actually a massive movement of African and South Korean and Asian missionaries coming to the West, bringing, you know, renewed spiritual vitality. Uh, I mean, I'll throw the same thing at you, Jamie, and I don't know if that's a tough act to follow, but why do you think that other places, why do you think that other places have grabbed on where here there is a movement away? Because it looks very, very stark, the difference. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I, to speak for what I see in, in Canada, I think we're a people that are very distracted by things like uh, material wealth, um, entertainment, all these types of um, things that just distract us. And I think we get to a point where we feel confident in and of ourselves to think we don't need God, right? Like, why do I need to pray to a God when I've got a job that provides everything that I need, perhaps, for my family? And uh, without thinking, where did I even get the skills and abilities to perform the job that I'm performing? Not thinking that those perhaps could have come from a God-endowed a God endowed a talent that that He's given you, um, and yeah, I think uh, you know I actually lived for for two years in Kampala, Uganda, and um, I just saw uh, a people that uh, that lived well, that were that were friendly, um, and yet that that an openness to spirituality was was there, and uh, they, there was both Christians and Muslims living there, uh, living well, like together, like peacefully together. And um, it was just—it was just a beautiful thing. I learned so much from from those two years that I that I lived there. How much? And by the way, I'm glad you survived at least driving in downtown Kampala. I've been there, <laughs> and if you've been on a road in Kampala, it's a—it's an achievement to make it out of there oh, yeah. alive on the roads. Um, but Gord, it's not just that. We got to take a break here in a second. But it's not just that there is a lack of interest more here in Canada. It seems, in a lot of cases, and we see this all the time now. It seems there is almost a. Um, What's the word I'm looking for? A disdain towards yeah. it. And why? Okay. How did we go from most Canadians, at least, were nominally okay with the church, right. to now a great number saying, not only am I not going to go, I despise it. 
Well, and part of it's the history of the church in terms of scandals, uh, sexual scandals, abuse scandals. I think those things give ammunition to to critics, and and those things should be criticized. I'm not defending. I'm just saying. But but if you already have questions about the church, that doesn't help, you know, draw people back to the church, just gives people more reason to not attend church. Our history, uh, in many ways, is troubling in terms of in indigenous relations, residential schools, those things all, it's, it's, they're all pieces to the pie of why people are drifting from sort of formal institutional Christianity, and those are all important pieces um, that that are there. I think part of it too is our postmodern world, where my generation we tended to trust institutions. Um, my kids' generation tends to not trust institutions, um, and sometimes for good reasons. There's lots of good reasons not to trust institutions. So, so I think that's part of it too. And, and Jamie's already alluded to, you know, like people are still spiritual; they just don't like institutional Christianity. Gord, you said one of the lines, and we hear this all the time: "I'm spiritual but not religious." Is that a problem? Is it a problem? Um, well, it's it's it just is for those people, and and I guess for the church, the question is, well, why do they feel that way? What is it about the church that is is alienating them? If it is the church, it's alienating them. Sometimes it's not the church. Sometimes they just want to live a different life, not under the discipline of the church or under the lifestyle of the church. So it's not always the church's fault, so to speak. But um, is it a problem? For for Christians, um, Christians part of part of the Christian faith is is the conviction that you know sort of the Lone Ranger Christian is not the ideal. The Lone Ranger Christian really you know sort of needs to rethink one's relationship with the larger community. That the faith is to be lived in community with some kind of rhythm of worship and of discipline, of fellowship and of care for one another. And so, it's it's just um, so. I wouldn't say it's a problem, but it's. It, you would hope that those who are interested in the Christian faith or participating in some way would catch a fuller vision for what the Christian faith is is ideally supposed to be and theologically supposed to be. Um, the fact that many don't see the church as having any appeal to them, or not even, you know, listening to my explanation of sort of the ideal you know, the way it's supposed to be, if that doesn't even resonate with them or say, I've never seen that, well, then that's the church's, it's on the church. I mean, we need to somehow model that. Um, people long for community, I think. People long for a sense of transcendence, that that there is something larger and bigger than just buying more things and having more toys. And and so I think the the work of the church is to demonstrate that it has answers to some of the deepest longings of, of people. Well, and Jamie, I'm sure you've heard that same same comment from people before as well. This weekend, we're talking about this because we're leading into Easter weekend. This weekend, for Christians, would say, you don't have to be religious per se, but it's not about just being spiritual for the sake of crystals or whatever else. I mean, there's, there's you would argue, I think, that it's more than just being spiritual. Right, right. Yeah, I think... Uh, that idea that people want to be spiritual without being religious reflects on our culture uh, being very individualistic. And uh, we don't like having authority over us. We don't like people telling us what to do. So if I can just be spiritual and kind of think about, you know, these spiritual type of issues um, on my own, then I'm happy to do that. And I don't want someone really telling me what to think about God or, or religion. Um, 
I think though that, that there is major major issues with that, and that I think uh, you know we were we were made to uh, to work under under authority that we would live under under God under His. You know, we talk about uh, um, in in the Christian faith that uh, that 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 we're we're about the kingdom of God, and so um, in the kingdom of God, we 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 have to live under a king. I think in our day and age, people want the kingdom without the king. And so they want all the good benefits of what God has given us, but they don't want to listen to God when he, he says to them that they have to live in a certain way or, or live in, in community. And, and, uh, and so I think there's, there's many benefits um, to living in community and living, uh, living life under, under authority um, from, uh, from people that are, are reliable. But ultimately, we're living under the authority of God. We're living under the authority of his word. And I think that's where life um, really finds meaning and, and purpose and, uh, and where we can truly thrive as individuals. But Gord, one of the places where this gets really, I would think, complicated now is that in modern society, especially in North America, politics and religion have become very intertwined mm -hmm. so that, you know, almost even if you were someone who might be interested in religion, but don't share the political views of the party that seem to be the one of that religion, maybe now mm. the politics forces you, I mean, it, yeah. it, it becomes a real, a real complicated issue when those two things become tied together. Yeah. Whenever, whenever religion and politics mix, um, it's, it can get messy very quickly and abuses can come very quickly. And just, I teach Christian history, so, you know. There's well, plenty of examples. There's lots of examples. I don't need to go, I think people can pick up some of the examples already. Um, so, and that's just another reason when they see that kind of political involvement, it's not that Christians shouldn't be involved in politics. I'm all for, if you're a citizen, you get involved in your, in your nation to create a flourishing society for all people, whether Christian, Muslim, Buddhist, Hindu, atheist, whatever. You engage the public square to make life better for everyone. Um, so, so I'm for Christians getting involved in the public square in thoughtful, wise, you know, kind, gracious ways. Um, but when it goes wrong, when that Christian involvement goes wrong and you see anger, coercion, hatred, manipulation, those kinds of things entering into it, well, that's just another reason why some people say, well, I'm spiritual, not religious. Like, I don't want anything to do with that because look at that, um, that abuse of power or that, that religion is, is now sort of tied up in a political party, the fortunes of X, Y, or Z political party. So, so again, yeah, get involved. Christians, I have no problem with Christians involved in politics. I just, a lot of the research that I do relates to Christians in politics, Christians in war, and, and uh, yeah, it's not always a happy story. Jamie, should, should pastors ever then take a political position? Uh, they, I think they can personally, I have personal political positions, but I would never preach, um, I guess on saying, uh, that people should do X, Y, or Z because I say so. I think, uh, there's freedom within, uh, the Christian faith to have different perspectives on things. And so, yeah, I think like I'm, uh, West Highland, uh, where I'm a pastor is a Baptist church. One of the, like one of the Baptist like traditions is the separation of church and state. Baptists coming over from uh, the UK were coming for religious freedom, um, and so I think the idea of separation of church and state—that's that's an idea that the church um, is on board with. I think uh, that that uh, we should have uh, as Christians 
again, personal say in what uh, in in the, the the way our nation moves forward, but just as much as an atheist or um, a Buddhist or or whoever. Um, but I, I I think probably um, what what I sometimes have trouble with is that people saying that uh, there should be no religion in in politics. But again, I think everyone is religious whether they say so or not. And so everyone's bringing some sort of, you know, presupposition into their politics based on what they believe or don't mm. believe about God. So to say that Christians should check that at the door while everyone else is allowed to have their own views, I think is disingenuous. Uh, let me go to the historian here before we go to a break, because am I correct that once upon, the, the separation of church and state that Jamie alludes to, originally, we, we talk now that there should be no church in the public square and schools or whatever. Was it not originally that the separation of church and state was to keep the state out of the church? Exactly. It wasn't, uh, it, it, it was not a matter of the Christians shouldn't become politicians, shouldn't petition, shouldn't vote. It was the state seeking to control the church, appoint bishops, appoint key leaders, uh, coerce when the church preached a message that the government didn't like. So Christians, and well, Jamie references Baptists, um, Baptists, one of their you know, they wanted to simply form their own churches, and they were put in prison for it because the state said, "No, you can't." And so, out of that came this notion of separation of uh, separation of church and state, meaning get your hands off us, let the church do the business of the church, and let the state do the business of the state. And the state has certain things to do, lead to human flourishing in general for all citizens, uh, and let the church deal with the spiritual concerns, pastoral care, those kinds of things. You probably remember, even if you're not putting it together right now, you probably remember Jamie's name because he was in the news a lot a few years ago in 2020 when his son Jude was hit by a truck up on the mountain, a guy that was speeding and ran a stop sign or a red light. And, you know, Jamie, you, you seem like the absolute perfect person to ask this one question that may be the one that gets asked more than anything else I hear, which is, if there is a God and there's a benevolent God and a God who is not just mean, how do things like that happen to people who are good people and not doing anything wrong? As I say, I, I don't know of anyone who's in a more unique position than you to take a stab at answering this. Well, you've had three years to think about this and contemplate it. Mm -hmm. What is your thought on that? Yeah, well, um, yeah, it's... Uh, it's a, is it not an easy question? People have been talking about this question for centuries, for millennia, about uh, why bad things happen. And um, I think it's, it's not a, first of all, I just start off by saying it's not a, a logical contradiction to say that God can exist and be good and bad things still, still happen. I think uh, when we look at when bad things happen in the world, um, a lot of the times it's because of bad decisions made by, by people. Uh, you mentioned uh, what happened uh, to my son Jude. Well, that was a bad decision that um, someone made to drive uh, erratically and uh, and cost my son his life. And so, um, yeah, no, it's uh, it's a very uh, it's a very difficult question. But I think uh, for me, I've I've seen, and as you said, I've I've kind of lived through this that um, God doesn't doesn't promise that bad things won't happen in the world. We're, we're, we're talking about Easter this weekend, perhaps the worst thing that ever happened. An innocent person, Jesus, was, was crucified and killed. Um, 
from false charges put up against him. So, you know, we remember that on Good Friday. Um, and then Easter Sunday, we remember that uh, because Jesus had, was without sin, um, he rose triumphant from the grave and that, and that the grave couldn't, couldn't hold him because, um, because he was without sin. But, um, and so, that, and that gives, that, get, that gives hope. And so I think this question is a good one to ask in the Easter weekend because I think it's the hope of the resurrection that has given me hope during this time. And uh, to think that uh, I will see Jude again, I have confidence in that, and that's the hope that my faith, my faith gives me. Um, but God's will is mysterious. He doesn't promise to take us out of painful situations, but he promises to be with us in the midst of that. And I think one of the most famous psalms and one of the ones that's uh, close to my heart is Psalm 23, where David says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. And so God walks with us through these difficult times. And uh, and I can't imagine going through what my wife Vanessa and I went through without God, without him carrying us, holding us. And uh, and you talk about or- organized religion without the church coming around us um, during that time. Like when we couldn't put a step forward, when we couldn't didn't have strength or energy to make meals or do laundry, we had people from our church coming and dropping off meals, someone coming over to do our laundry and uh, it's just a beautiful thing when the, when the church um, is at work in that way. And so I don't think it's a logical contradiction. In fact, I'd only say my faith has been increased during this time. So you weren't, and I mean, th- these are uncomfortable questions to ask. They're probably uncomfortable to answer in some ways. You weren't at some point furious at God that he could have prevented this from happening. If you believe that God is all-powerful, he could have prevented this from happening to you and your family and didn't. There wasn't rage or anger there about that? I didn't say that. Uh, yeah, no, there was uh, There was anger. There was a lack of understanding of why God would allow something like this would happen. But uh, yeah, for sure, I was I was angry and, and mad. And why me? Yeah, you know, we just ask these questions. Why me? Why not someone else? Um, but again, my faith it cradles me during that because it, it has space for that. I mentioned the Psalms, like a third of the Psalms are lament Psalms where David or other psalmists are writing and they're, they're either angry at God, they're not understanding what's going on, they're saying the way things are going isn't how it should be. And so um, my faith gives me space to be angry at God, to, to pray to him in that sort of way, but then also know that he's carrying me through it and that even though in some ways I see the hard side of God, I also see the, the soft and caring side that can only be found in God. Uh, uh, a person and a being like God who can be both um, a God of, of justice and wrath, but also a God of love and care and nearness. The, uh, the, the line that I think probably now I've not been and no one probably listening has been where you've been. So, but the thing that, you know, well, it must be a reason for this is one of the, the things people sometimes say, because it's like, well, you know, the, there's in the end, there's, I think that's a probably a really um, unhelpful thing to say at times. But do you believe that? Do you believe that somehow there is a reason for this? Yeah, I don't believe that anything happens by accident. I do believe that uh, God has his, his purposes. Um, I think that one of the things that probably a lot of people struggle with in understanding the way I interpret what's happened is that um, it's, it's, a, it's a human tragedy what happened when an 11-year-old boy gets hit crossing the road coming home from school. And... Uh, and his life was too short. We, we all, I agree with that. Everyone would, would agree with that. 
But what I also hold to at the same time is that God does know the beginning from the end. He knew from eternity past that Jude would have 11 years and four months, and that would be the fullness of his life, and that at, at that moment that Jude passed, he would be ushered into eternity. And I 100% in my heart believe that Jude is happier right now in this moment than he has ever been because he's in the presence of God. And so for me to go through that with that knowledge and belief and faith that's, again, grounded in the resurrection that we're celebrating this weekend, um, it causes me to live in the tension of these two places where I miss him so much. I wish I could see him right now. But at the same time, if Jude and I could speak right now, he wouldn't be saying, hey, Dad, I want to come back. He'd be saying, hey, Dad, I can't wait till you're joining me. Um, in the presence of God. Gord, at the, at the start of the show, we were talking about this Leger poll that came out yesterday or today, mm-hmm. talking about how many people are moving away from the church. That said, there are still going to be thousands and thousands mm-hmm. and thousands in churches tomorrow and tonight and on Sunday. Why? Why? Um, because for those who attend, um, for most of them, I mean, how do I speak? For everyone, but generally speaking, people go because this is the highest Christian uh, holy day of the entire Christian calendar. I mean, kids get excited about Christmas, but in terms of the highest, the pivotal, the most important Christian um, holy weekend or week, actually holy week, it's it's Easter, and uh, so people go because uh, it 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 this event the the. The arrest, the trial, the death, the resurrection, ascension, ascension of Jesus is absolutely pivotal to the Christian faith. So important that the Gospel of John, Jesus lived 33 years roughly. Half of the Gospel of John is on one week of his life. And that's his arrest and trial and crucifixion, resurrection. That's how important it is to the Christian faith. And I think the faithful uh, Christians who attend all these different churches of, you know, Catholic, Orthodox, Protestant, um, they recognize that. And so they come to, to celebrate the, the, the core, the absolute uh, core of their faith, uh, the sending of, of uh, God's Son into this world, dying, rising again, and ascending to heaven. So... Really appreciate you guys coming in and doing this. I know that uh, usually this time of year or usually any time we talk about the bunnies and the, the chocolate and stuff, but I thought, you know what, this time let's uh, let's talk about what, uh, what well, you know what, it's called Easter for a reason. And uh, appreciate you guys, Jamie Strickland and Gordy. Thanks for doing this. Thank you. No problem. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.